Chapter 19, Part 2 of Volume 2 of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alan Winterout. Volume 2 of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times by Francois Guizot. Translated by Robert Black. Chapter 19. The Communes and the Third Estate. Part 2. In our own day there has been far too much inclination to dispute, and Monsieur Augustin Thierry has, in Monsieur Guizot's opinion, made far too little of the active and effective part played by the kingship in the formation and protection of the French communes. Not only did the kings, as we shall presently see, often interpose as mediators in the quarrels of the communes with their lack or ecclesiastical lords, but many amongst them assumed in their own domains and to the profit of the communes an intelligent and beneficial initiative. The city of Orleans was a happy example of this. It was of ancient date and had prospered under the Roman Empire. Nevertheless, the continuance of the Roman municipal regimen does not appear there clearly as we have just seen that it did in this case of Bourges. It is chiefly from the Middle Ages and their kings that Orleans held its municipal franchises and its privileges. They never raised it to a commune, properly so called, by a charter sworn to and guaranteed by independent institutions, but they set honestly to work to prevent local oppression, to reform abuses, and make justice prevail there. From 1051, to 1281, there can be found in the Recueil des Ordonnances des Rois seven important charters relating to Orleans. In 1051, at the demand of the people of Orleans and its bishop, who appears in the charter as the head of the people, the defender of the city, Henry I, secures to the inhabitants of Orleans freedom of labor and of going to and fro during the vintages and interdicts his agents from exacting anything upon the entry of wines. From 1137 to 1178, during the administration of Suger, Louis the Young in four successive ordinances gives, in respect of Orleans, precise guarantees for freedom of trade, security of persons and property, and the internal peace of the city. And in 1183, Philip Augustus exempts all from taliage, that is, from all personal impost, the present and future inhabitants of Orleans, and grants them diverse privileges, amongst others that of not going to law courts farther from their homes than a tomp. In 1281, Philip the Bold renews and confirms the concessions of Philip Augustus. Orleans was not, within the royal domain, the only city where the kings of that period were careful to favor the progress of the population of wealth, and of security. Several other cities, and even less considerable burgs, obtained similar favor, and then 1155, Louis the Young, probably in confirmation of an act of his father, Louis the Fat, granted to the little town of Loris in Gatanay, nowadays chief place of a canton in the department of the Loirette, a charter full of detail which regulated its internal regimen in financial, commercial, judicial, and military matters, and secured to all its inhabitants 
good conditions in respect of civil life. This charter was in the course of the twelfth century regarded as so favorable that it was demanded by a great number of towns and burgs. The king was asked for the customs of Loris, and in the space of fifty years they were granted to seven towns, some of them a considerable distance from Orleans. The towns which obtained them did not become by this qualification communes properly so called in the special and historical sense of the word. They had no jurisdiction of their own, no independent magistracy. They had not their own government in their hands. The king's officers, provosts, bailiffs, or others were the only persons who exercised there a real and decisive power. But the king's promises to the inhabitants, the rights which he authorized them to claim from him, and the rules which he imposed upon his officers in their government, were not concessions which were of no value or which remained without fruit. As we follow in the course of our history the towns which, without having been raised to communes properly so called, had obtained advantages of that kind, we see them developing and growing in population and wealth, and sticking more and more closely to that kingship from which they had received their privileges, and which, for all its imperfect observance and even frequent violation of promises, was nevertheless accessible to complaint, repressed from time to time the misbehavior of its officers, renewed at need and even extended privileges, and, in a word, promoted in its administration the progress of civilization and the counsels of reason, and thus detached the burghers to itself without recognizing on their side those positive rights and those guarantees of administrative independence which are, in a perfect and solidly constructed social fabric, the foundation of political liberty. Nor was it the kings alone who, in the Middle Ages, listened to the counsels of reason, and recognized in their behavior toward their towns the right of justice. Many bishops had become the feudal lords of the Episcopal city, and the Christian spirit enlightened and animated many amongst them, just as the monarchical spirit sometimes enlightened and guided the kings. Troubles had arisen in the town of Cambrai between the bishops and the people. There was amongst the member of the metropolitan clergy, says Monsieur Augustin Thierry, a certain Baudry de Sarchianville, a native of Artois, who had the title of chaplain of the bishopric. He was a man of high character and of wise and reflecting mind. He did not share the violent aversion felt by most of his order for the institution of communes. He saw in this institution a sort of necessity beneath which it would be inevitable sooner or later, willy-nilly, to bow, and he thought it was better to surrender to the wishes of the citizens than to shed blood in order to postpone for a while an unavoidable revolution. In 1098, he was elected Bishop of Noyon. He found this town in the same state in which he had seen that of Cambrai. The burghers were at daily loggerheads with the metropolitan clergy, and the registers of the church contained a host of documents entitled Peace Made Between Us and the Burghers of Noyon. But no reconciliation was lasting. The truce was soon broken, either by the clergy or by the citizens, who were the more touchy in that they had less security for their persons and their property. The new bishop thought that the establishment of a commune sworn to by both the rival parties might become a sort of compact of alliance between them and he set about realizing this noble idea before the word commune had served at Noyon 
as a rallying cry of popular insurrection. Of his own mere motion, he convoked in assembly all the inhabitants of the town, clergy, knights, traders, and craftsmen. He presented them with a charter which constituted the body of burghers an association forever under magistrates called jurymen, like those of Cambrai. Whosoever, says the charter, shall desire to enter this commune, shall not be able to be received as a member of it by a single individual, but only in the presence of the jurymen. The sum of money he shall then give shall be employed for the benefit of the town, and not for the private advantage of any one whatsoever. If the commune be outraged, all those who have sworn to it shall be bound to march to its defense, and none shall be empowered to remain at home unless he be infirm or sick, or so poor that he must needs be himself the watcher of his own wife and children lying sick. If any one have wounded or slain any one on the territory of the commune, the jurymen shall take their vengeance, therefore. The other articles guaranteed to the members of the commune of Noyon, the complete ownership of their property, and the right of it not being handed over to justice save before their own municipal magistrates. The bishop first swore to this charter, and the inhabitants of every condition took the same oath after him. In virtue of his pontifical authority, he pronounced the anathema, and all curses of the Old and New Testament, against whoever should come in time to come dare to dissolve the commune or infringe its regulations. Furthermore, in order to give this new pact a stronger warranty, Baudry requested the king of France, Louis the Fat, to corroborate it, as they used to say at the time, by his approbation and by the great seal of the crown. The king consented to this request of the bishop, and that was all the part taken by Louis the Fat in the establishment of the commune of Noyon. The king's charter is not preserved, but under the date of 1108 there is extant one of the bishop's own, which may serve to substantiate the account given. Baudry, by the grace of God, Bishop of Noyon, to all those who do preserve and go on in the faith. Most dear brethren, we learn by the example and words of the Holy Fathers, that all good things ought to be committed to writing, for fear lest hereafter they come to be forgotten. Know then, all Christians present and to come, that I have formed at Noyon a commune, constituted by the council, and in an assembly of clergy, knights, and burghers, that I have confirmed it by oath, by pontifical authority, and by the bond of anathema, that I have prevailed upon our Lord King Louis to grant this commune and corroborate it with the king's seal. This establishment formed by me, sworn to by a great number of persons, and granted by the king, let none be so bold as to destroy or alter. I give warning thereof, on behalf of God and myself, and I forbid it in the name of pontifical authority. Whoever shall transgress and violate the present law be subjected to excommunication, and whosoever on the contrary shall faithfully keep it be preserved forever amongst those who dwell in the house of the Lord. This good example was not without fruit. The communal regimen was established in several towns, notably at St. Quentin and at Soissons, without trouble or violence, and with one accord amongst the laic and ecclesiastical lords and the inhabitants. We arrive now at the third and chief source of the communes, at the case of those which met feudal opposition with energetic resistance, and which, after all the sufferings, vicissitudes, and outrages on both sides, 
of a prolonged struggle ended by winning a veritable administration and to a certain extent political independence. The number of communes thus formed from the 11th to the 13th century was great, and we have a detailed history of the fortunes of several among them, Cambrai, Beauvais, Léon, Amiens, Rheims, Etampes, Vézelay, etc. To give a correct and vivid picture of them, we will choose the commune of Léon, which was one of those whose fortunes were most checkered as well as most tragic and which, after more than two centuries of a very tempestuous existence, was sentenced to complete abolition, first by Philip the Handsome, then by Philip the Long and Charles the Handsome, and finally by Philip of Valois, for certain misdeeds and excesses notorious, enormous and detestable, and on full deliberation of our council. The early portion of the history connected with the Commune of Léon has been narrated for us by Gibert, an abbot of nogent sur cousset in the diocese of Léon, a contemporary writer, sprightly and bold. In all that I have written, and am still writing, says he, I dismiss all men from my mind, caring not a whit about pleasing anybody. I have taken my side in the opinions of the world, and with calmness and indifference on my own account, I expect to be exposed to all sorts of language, to be, as it were, beaten with rods. I proceed with my task, being fully proposed to bear with equanimity the judgments of all who come snarling after me. Léon was, at the end of the eleventh century, one of the most important towns in the kingdom of France. It was full of rich and industrious inhabitants, the neighboring people came thither for provisions or diversion, and such concourse led to the greatest disturbances. The nobles and their servitors, says Monsieur Augustus Thierry, sword in hand, committed robbery upon the burghers. The streets of the town were not safe by night or even by day, and none could go out without running a risk of being stopped and robbed or killed. The burghers in their turn committed violence upon the peasants, who came to buy or sell at the market of the town. Let me give as example, says Guibert of Nogent, a single fact, which had it taken place among the barbarians or the Scythians, would assuredly have been considered the height of wickedness, in the judgment even of those who recognized no law. On Saturday, the inhabitants of the country places used to leave their fields and come from all sides to Léon to get provisions at the market. The townsfolk used then to go round the place carrying in baskets or bowls or otherwise, samples of vegetables or grain or any other article as if they wished to sell. They would offer them to the first peasant who was in search of such things to buy. He would promise to pay the price agreed upon, and then the seller would say to the buyer, Come with me to my house to see and examine the whole of the articles I am selling you. The other would go, and then, when they came to the bin containing the goods, the honest seller would take off and hold up the lid, saying to the buyer, Step hither and put your head or arms into the bin, to make quite sure that all is exactly of the same goods as I showed you outside. And then when the other, jumping onto the edge of the bin, remained leaning on his belly, with his head and shoulders hanging down, the worthy seller, who kept in the rear, would hoist up the thoughtless rustic by the feet, push him suddenly into the bin, and clapping on the lid as he fell, keep him shut up in the safe prison until he had bought himself out. End of chapter 19, part 2 Recording by Alan Winteroud, Boom Coach, 
www.blogspot.com.